So the Presbyterians get they get it they get a check mark this time. <laughs> they get a pass. It's it's next episode things are gonna get weird, but um. Oh, God. This in this episode, the Presbyte <laughs> for the second half of this episode, the Presbyterians are no longer the bad guys. <laughs> <laughs> the only Protestants uh, who didn't suck always. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to We Talk About Dead People, a podcast where we talk about dead people. I'm your host Aaron C, and I'm here with my good friend and co-host George. Say hi, George. Well, today I actually Googled how to say hi on a podcast, and that got me absolutely nowhere. So I guess for the time being, until I find something better, I'm sticking with hi. You're living your best life. <laughs> we hope to keep our listeners entertained and interested while we break down various members of the odd, exciting family that is humanity. The way this works is that George and I will do our amateur's best to give a basic account of the major events in the life of a now-dead person and give a fairly accurate depiction of their individual character, which is going to be harder to do, obviously, but we're going to try anyway. So, George, who do we have this week? We have James Connolly and the Easter Rising of 1916. But before we get there, there's a lot of ground to cover first. Hell yeah! I say we go down to the History Lab right now and get started! Yeehaw. <laughs> <laughs> On a serene and beautiful emerald isle, where the leprechauns dance and rivers of shamrock shakes flow over the- Oh wait, this isn't a Hallmark St. Patrick's Day card! Cut! In a world where might makes right, poor farmers have no rights, and the government might just hang your local priest for not agreeing that the king should be in charge of the church, a lot of people stood up and said, Give Trasna Ortain. Which is Irish Gaelic for go fuck yourself sideways. So, Aaron, how's your week been so far? My week has been... It's only Monday, so I haven't gotten that far, but so far it's been pretty awful. I mean, this last week was maybe the worst week of my entire fucking life. Uh, I don't know. Wow, I'm sorry to hear that. Uh, what's, what's got you down? You sound really sad. I don't know. I'm just hearing about all this environmental stuff. It's really getting me down. It it really makes me sad to think about that giant trash island in the ocean. Yeah, England is a fucking joke. <laughs> what does England have to do with it? Oh, no, I can't. Oh, oh king of comedy. <laughs> all right. God damn it. Let's get on with it. Do you have a real question for the elevator moment? Okay. Okay. Um, let me give me a second. Um. If you were a rogue historian on the run, hiding your identity, and you were in a conversation and you had to divert suspicion from yourself by asking a question that made you seem incredibly stupid, what would you ask? Uh, oh, fuck. Rogue historian on the run, hiding my identity, and I have to hide myself by asking a suspicious question? Well, asking or... a question that makes you sound really stupid so you couldn't possibly be a rogue historian. Oh, um... Are bees bats? <laughs> no. uh, that's not where I would have gone with, but I mean, that does sound... Okay. It would make me sound pretty stupid. <laughs> so what would you say? I think I would ask why all these stupid ancient civilizations built their ruins so far from public transit and the highway system. That, uh, that's a 
That's a very good question. Why the hell would they do that? Why would you build an empire in the middle of nowhere when you could build one next to Walmart and KFC? Right on the exit off the interstate. Yeah. Like, what the, what the hell gives? Hey, do you remember that time where we drove, <laughs> like, 30 minutes to a Walmart to get limes? You know, I actually don't. You don't? It was it was when we were making the G&Ts. God, no, I don't remember this. Who- we drove we drove out to get tonic water and, and uh, limes, but we had to drive all the way to that Walmart because nothing I, else was open. I do remember going to Walmart with my roommate, and his GPS told us to park on the highway and walk. <laughs> <laughs> the AI really is trying to kill people. <laughs> Computer, please bring up James Connolly and the nation of Ireland. So tell me, George, what is James Connolly best known for? Well, Aaron, James Connolly is best known for being one of the leaders of the famous Easter Rising of 1916. But we're going to hold off there and take a step back to get a broader view of Irish history leading up to the rebellion before we dive into the particulars of Connolly's life. Sounds good. Um, just so everybody knows, this is going to be a two-parter, just like Ceausescu, and it's going to be... Uh, I honestly have no idea, because I'm not the one working on it, but I kn- I've been warned that this first part is pretty fucking dark, and I, I tend to agree, even though I haven't even heard the story yet, because when we covered uh, Liam Lynch way back in the day, we learned that uh, Irish history is something like the worst thing you could ever imagine. (laughs) It's not good. Um, So that's another heads up for you. But with that being said, I think uh, think George, take it away. All right, let's get this party started. So Ireland, as you know, I hope you know, I can't speak for your level of education, but I hope you know, is (laughs) a lovely island nation off the coast of a terrible island nation. (laughs) Unfortunately, since some people can't keep their goddamn hands to themselves, covering the history of Ireland will involve a lot of references to, may God forbid me for uttering this word, the English. So I apologize in advance for that. Oh, God. So y'all need to know that I'm I'm mostly English. (laughs) George is not. (laughs) At the end of this podcast, we're going to ceremonially execute Aaron. Yes, that's fine by me. He, he will atone for the crimes of his people. <laughs> oh, man. All right. So let's get the uh, the way, 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 way back background out of the way. So unlike the island we don't speak of, Ireland was never part of the Roman Empire. It was known to the Romans who called it Hibernia. And if you've heard of the ancient order of Hibernians, which is sort of an Irish fraternal society in the U.S., that's where it comes from. Sometimes they called it Scotia from Scoti, which was the general Latin term for Celtic peoples. Of course, neither one of those sounds like Era, which is what the Irish call their country. That's because that name actually comes from the Greek Ierain, which is what a Greek explorer named Pythias called the island in the 4th century BC. Fun fact. In any case, the important part here is that Ireland was never subjected to Roman rule or Roman institutions, unlike its neighbor. Uh, so I, I have to say, that's kind of foreboding. <laughs> yeah, so it's it's just it has a different it has a very different cultural background is what's going to be important. Okay. So as we all know, Ireland eventually becomes Christian due to the efforts of our dude Patrick, a man from Romanized Britain who was captured by Irish pirates and spent years in slavery before he finally escaped, and then 
like an absolute G, returns to Ireland to preach to those who had enslaved him. Damn. <laughs> Along with Christianity, Patrick also brought Roman writing to Ireland, which allowed him to write down and codify Ireland's social and political customs, which were heavily focused on local identity and tribal structures, and much less centralized than the Roman system. Patrick didn't try to turn the Irish into wannabe Romans like his own British people were. Rather, he only tried to change things in society that he felt directly conflicted with Christianity. So Patrick was all about leaving Irish society Irish plus Christianity. Okay. Um, there was also that that saint's story where he banished all the snakes or something like that. Is that... you hear about that? I, I mean, I've, I've heard about it. Okay. Okay. I don't know if if it has any significance or if it if it happened that way or literally or just it's a good myth. Uh, I don't know. I was just wondering. I don't know. I di I didn't look into that. I figured that being that we're currently about fifteen hundred or fourteen hundred years prior to where our technical topic actually starts, <laughs> I was going to be pretty limited in what I covered. <laughs> so we won't talk about snakes. Let's get so back we to won't Ireland. Oh, we'll be talking about snakes. It's just that they're on the other side of the Irish Sea. Okay. <laughs> on that, on the trash island. <laughs> so, as it happens, Christian Irish culture really takes off in the Irish tribal society. Tons and tons of texts from the ancient world only survive because they were painstakingly copied by Irish monks in the first millennium. Like, tons of ancient Latin texts only made it to the modern world because they were copied by Irish monks. So, thank you, Irish monks. <laughs> Likewise, some of the most impressive artifacts from the 7th through 10th centuries come from Christian Ireland. Amazing metalwork and sculpture, incredibly gorgeous illuminated manuscript paintings. Like, it was some very fine technical production going on. They also preserve their own unique cultural patrimony with their own myths and heroes and legendary kings, and they had their own epic poems and literary traditions. Like, it really was a, um, a very complex and sort of very full society. Like, it was a completely different world than Romanized Britain, which had basically just become wannabe Romans, and most of their institutions and sort of literary tradition ends up being based on Roman stuff, whereas opposed to the Irish, who have their completely own cultural background. That's fascinating because um, we, at least as an American, I usually think of those two uh, countries as being like hand in hand just because of the whole UK bullshit. Um, but the more I think about that, the more I realize that that, uh, that uh, perspective is completely wrong. Uh, and it helps me understand, I guess, the, the history of Ireland a lot better. That's how ignorant I was. I didn't even realize that, uh, that Rome hadn't gotten to Ireland. Yep. Yeah, no, it's like there was probably some limited interaction like with merchants and stuff, but Rome never tried to land troops on Ireland. Well, their loss. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so even more so than in other Catholic areas, monasteries played a huge role in Irish society, serving as the focal points of the communities, not just religiously, but also socially politically and economically. In many cases, the leadership of the Christian monasteries came from the elites of the tribal system. So the monasteries really were more than just a religious center. They kind of became the political center of communities as well. And so while the universal structure of the church 
existed in Ireland. You know, the whole system with bishops and dioceses and all that, that absolutely exists in Ireland just like it does in any other Christian country, despite what some weird, quote-unquote, Celtic Christianity advocates like to say. It existed. It's just that in Ireland, especially early on, the, mona the monastic system played a much bigger role in addition to that and was probably more relevant to actual people than the ecclesiastical system with the bishops and everything, but they both did exist. Gotcha. So in the 7th and 8th century, uh, special monastic schools were actually established in Ireland specifically for students from England since Irish monasteries had become known internationally for their learning. Um, throughout these centuries, so 6th, 7th, 8th, and in the 9th, Monks from Ireland actually traveled around preaching and establishing churches and monasteries, and oftentimes being martyred, not only in neighboring places like England and Scotland, but all over Europe, in France, Germany, Switzerland. There are monasteries that are actually still in existence, which were founded by Irish monks in the first millennium. That is so cool. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it is pretty cool. It is pretty cool. Um, so there's, they occasionally have some trouble with, like, English raiding across the Irish Sea, but for the most part, things are pretty chill. So, okay. to reiterate, the important takeaway here is that the Irish have always had a whole culture and social structure and tradition of government that's completely separate from their English neighbors in the Foreman Roman em former Roman Empire. Those lucky bastards. <laughs> <laughs> true, true. <laughs> But once you get to the 9th century, things start to get a little rough for the Irish, as they become target numero uno for Viking raids from Scandinavia. Since they had some of the nicest stuff to take, and monks tend not to fight back that much, it's a pretty good idea to go kill them and take their stuff. Eventually, the Vikings started just building settlements on the Irish coast. Since, if you think about it, it's much more convenient to plunder Ireland if you don't have to sail all the way across the North Sea to do it. You just literally build a house and then leave your house, do some plundering, go back to your house. Over time, however... I'm sorry. I'm sorry, but what the fuck does a football team want with Ireland? Why can't they just leave it alone? The, the historical record is most unclear on this point. <laughs> <laughs> so, over time, however, and this is how they get you, the, uh, the Vikings intermarried with the Irish and started doing things like trading and honest work instead of just killing people and taking their stuff. And so they sort of started to settle down. Okay, so that's kind of an improvement. That's an improvement. But there were also then always new Vikings coming who were still mostly interested in killing people and taking their stuff. So you had sort of a couple centuries of really confusing times with Irish and Vikings and a bunch of sort of intermediate stages between Irish and Vikings all kind of jockeying around the island, influencing each other, and no one really having sway over Ireland as a whole. However, that last feature wasn't really new, since Ireland had always tended to be pretty decentralized. In fact, the idea of the High King of Ireland exists in their myths and their epic poems for centuries, but it actually wasn't until the whole Viking problem started that people actually tried to make a real political high king of Ireland who could unify Ireland against the Vikings. <laughs> Unfortunately, I am the high king of Ireland. <laughs> <laughs> Sentence you to death. <laughs> Give me back my cheese wheel. <laughs> so this, this is how it is for a few centuries. Um, but in 1014, Brian Baru, the high king of Ireland, led forces which represented most of Ireland 
against an army of what they call Hiberno-Norse, which is the sort of partially Irish-assimilated Vikings from the Kingdom of Dublin, which, fun fact, was fa is founded by Vikings, not by the Irish. Um, huh. Along with Irish allies from Leinster, which is the region in the southeast of Ireland. So yeah, they, they, they fought with the Vikings against the rest of the Irish, and some fresh Scandinavian Vikings who were looking for trouble. So the High King, Brian Brew, won, and that pretty much marked the end of the Vikings being sort of the dominant power in Ireland. Like, there are still Vikings around, but after this, they never really were exercising the same type of, of power they were before. But unfortunately, Brian, the High King, <laughs> that just sounds funny, Brian, the High King, <laughs> his son, his grandson, and a bunch of other kings and leaders were killed, so this victory also meant that there wasn't an undisputed high king anymore. This is like very Skyrim. <laughs> it, it, it is pretty Skyrim, isn't it? <laughs> Did Skyrim steal the story from Ireland? <laughs> Skyrim belongs to the Celts. <laughs> <laughs> so, at least the whole Viking thing is over now, and we can all relax, right? Wrong. In the next century or so, Ireland was, as we said, a whole bunch of little kingdoms and dynasties all overlapping with each other and struggling to get into a position where they could make a shot to be the next high king. And it's just so there's there's no real central authority and nobody really has that good of a claim that they don't have to worry about somebody else taking it. So mm. it's just constant sort of struggling over who's going to be the high king. Finally, towards gotcha. the end of the 12th century, you finally start to get some real high kings again. But there's still, you know, oppositions and rivalries and rival claimants and stuff. And during this mess, somebody makes the cardinal mistake you can make in such a situation and decides to ask for help from outside. Oh, God. Oh, no. Wait, I, th no, I, no. I feel like we've seen this before, haven't we? Yes. Yes. You never ask. Oh, God. I hope they didn't go to. Where did they go? Tell me. Oh, I, I, we both know where they went, Aaron. Oh, God. <laughs> no. <laughs> so when the king of Connacht in northwestern Ireland was the high king, he exiled the king of Leinster. Yes, them again, the ones who fought with the Vikings against the rest of the Irish, for being involved in a bunch of plots against the previous high king. So what does the king of Leinster, a jackass named Diarmid McMurrah, do? He scoots his ass over to England and gets the permission of the English king, Henry II, to recruit a bunch of Norman knights to go stir up shit in Ireland. And that they do. They not only take back the lands previously ruled by Diarmid, but they also start conquering other stuff too. And Diarmid has some of the Norman leaders marry into his own family and makes one Norman son-in-law his heir. What a fuck. What a loser. I hate this guy. Yeah, no, me too. Me too. <laughs> but this gets the attention of the King of England. Ugh. Not a good thing to get under any circumstances. Because nope. <laughs> it's one thing to have a neighboring country that's perpetually fighting itself over who gets to wear the most special hat. <laughs> but it's a very different thing to have a rival state ruled by people like you. Since remember, mm. the English royalty were Normans descended from William the Conqueror. So Henry is worried that once the Normans in Ireland succeed to having a kingship, since now Diarmid's heir is a Norman, they are going to start consolidating and conquering and doing what his own Norman ancestors had done in England and forming an actual Irish-Norman kingdom. And that would present a legitimate threat to his own Norman-English kingdom. So what does he do? 
Well, he has a quick WhatsApp exchange with the Pope, Adrian IV, who, wouldn't you know it, happens to be the only English Pope in history. Oh, God. Happened to be the Pope at this moment. Only time before or after there's ever been an English Pope was the one who was Pope when this happened. So, the Pope issues a letter saying that Henry is supposed to go to Ireland and make sure that everything with the Irish Church is on the up and up. As we said, the church in Ireland was a bit unique and did have a lot of local character, but it was still absolutely part of the wider church and still had loyalty to the Pope and whatnot, but it was a little bit different, so it's not entirely weird that the Pope might want to sort of check in on them and make sure things hadn't gotten too weird. But of course, that's not the real reason. We all know the real reason is because Henry needed an inn to go to Ireland, and his buddy, the English Pope, was willing to give him that inn. And having gotten the inn, he goes with a fleet and an army, and makes he makes sure that all the Norman the Norman lords over in Ireland know that they are now part of the Kingdom of England. Those fuckers. Gah. So basically, Norman. it's the Viking situation all over again. I'm really <laughs> glad the Viking yes, situation. <laughs> I'm really glad that I don't just read. I think because you are correct. I did write the Viking situation. <laughs> <laughs> the crows are getting bigger. <laughs> Every time. Oh, man. <laughs> so, yes, it's the Viking situation all over again. And you have these English slash Norman rulers on the coasts and a lot of small Irish tribal kingdoms in the rest of the country. The policy of the English kings was to keep the Normans just strong enough to be useful and to maintain control over most of Ireland, either directly on the coast, or through the small Irish kings swearing loyalty, which many of them did. But they also didn't want the Normans to get so strong that they'd be dangerous, and so sometimes the English king would actually help rivals usurp other Norman lords just to keep things unstable enough that no Norman lord was going to become powerful enough to try to break away. I know, dick move. Empires suck. So, basically, you now have a couple hundred years of this, of back and forth, uniting and dividing, and border wars and raiding and all that between Normans slash English, and then all these different Irish groups. But then, the middle of the 14th century hits, and do you know what that means, Aaron? No. (laughs) You know what happened in 1348? Ah, Columbus sailed the ocean blue? Close. (laughs) The Black Death. Yay! (laughs) Oh, God. (laughs) No. So, since the Normans and the English are along the coasts, which is where people travel, and they live more densely in towns and cities and do a lot of trading, while the Irish and those Normans who had become sort of assimilated to the Irish live in much more dispersed rural villages and farming communities, what do you think happens? That's right, the plague fucks up the English and pretty much gives the Irish a pass. Nice. I know, this is like a first positive thing. Um, So the area of real English control pretty much shrinks to just Dublin and the surrounding area because their their coastal sort of strongholds were just devastated by the plague, and they end up pretty much just restricted back to Dublin. And the rest of Ireland is controlled by the actual Irish and some independent Norman rulers at various points on the spectrum of Irish assimilation. Got it. So it's kind of, it's, you have the Irish, you have the English, and you have the Normans who are technically, like, you know, closer to the English, but many of them have over the centuries sort of assimilated more towards being 
part of the Irish. Mm, okay. So it's a confusing system. This is confusing. Yeah. <laughs> but meanwhile, the English still claimed on paper to be ruling Ireland. And they had the whole shebang. They had an Irish parliament and with an Irish government and everything in Dublin that claimed to rule all of Ireland. In the 15th century, they even made laws forbidding the speaking of Irish Gaelic and the intermarriage of Irish with English or Normans, but they weren't even able to implement these laws in the tiny and ever-shrinking part of Ireland they did control right around Dublin, which makes sense since the English had a lot of other stuff going on, like the whole War of the Roses. I've played that game! That is a good one. That is a good one. But yeah, so basically the English are still claiming to rule Ireland, but they actually only control Dublin, and even there, many of their most restrictive anti-Irish laws aren't able to be implemented since, you know, the vast majority of the population is Irish, and there's only so far you can go. Didn't they ban harps? I think they did at one point. That's later. I think that's I think that's much later. Okay, that's that, that would be, because I, I remember they... They banned harps. They made it illegal to go bowling, basically, or hurley, or whatever the hell. Um, is that right? I think so. Yeah, it's yeah. It, it it gets bad. It just keeps getting worse, basically. Okay. So, it looks like Ireland is finally going to take a breath of fresh, non-invasive air for the first time in centuries. Right, since the English are pretty much just in Dublin, everything's calmed down. Ireland's mostly controlled by the Irish. It's going to be great, right, guys? Right. Obviously, I mean England. Right. England isn't just psychopathic in its uh, in its conquest mode. You know, it learned from the the, the English learned from the Roman Empire. Clearly, um, clearly. So, of course, the answer is wrong. Having right. finally gotten settled down, England's greedy little eyes turn back to Ireland, where <laughs> the most powerful of the Irish Norman rulers had grown troublesome for the English by doing various things like backing pretenders to the throne and occasionally going into open rebellion and declaring independence rather than simply paying lip service to the whole Irish government the English had set up. So basically, gotcha. for the past hundred years, you'd been fine to do your own thing as long as you didn't say you were doing your own thing. You didn't uh, actually gotcha. have to listen to the Irish government in Dublin, but you couldn't go out of your way to point out that you weren't listening to the Irish government in Dublin. That's kind of how it boiled, what it boiled down to. Gotcha. Okay. So, after all the the English have been withdrawing for so long, some of the Anglo, or sorry, the Norman Irish nobles start to decide they're going to go out of their way to point out that they're not being controlled anymore. And that was just a bad move. So, Henry VIII, one of the most noxious pustules of humanity to ever disgrace the Earth, decides that Ireland has to be dealt with. Okay, Henry VIII's on the scene. It's, it's, this is real history podcast hours. <laughs> yeah. So, instead of Ireland being a lordship under English rule, which is what it had been since the, since the, the Normans first became part of the English. It was the lordship of Ireland under the rule of the English crown. Henry decides that Ireland should get to be a kingdom. The kingdom of Ireland, ruled by a king of Ireland, who, by pure coincidence, would also be the king of England, who, by pure coincidence, was himself Henry VIII. <laughs> God. So uh. he has the so-called Irish parliament crown him king of Ireland. 
and he is able to shock and awe a number of Irish chiefs and Norman lords to recognize him as king, and he then begins a military conquest of the rest of Ireland. Dear God. So this Dear process... <laughs> This process of actually controlling Ireland ends up taking about a century of violence, slaughter, and destruction. But finally, the heroic English save Ireland from self-determination and independence. Oh, man. One of the final phases of this was called the Flight of the Earls in 1607, when many of the last remaining Irish nobles and rulers fled Ireland for mainland Europe after losing one of their wars, and this kind of marks the final destruction of that old Irish social order of clans and tribes and its replacement by the centralized English system of government. That's sad. Press F to pay respects. Yeah, F. <laughs> There's also now, in the interim, a huge factor that we haven't addressed yet. Uh-oh. In the 1530s, Henry had gotten mad that the Pope wouldn't let him divorce his wife. So he started his own religion with blackjack and hookers. <laughs> Literally. <laughs> it is slightly more complicated than that, but this podcast isn't about Henry, so I'm just going to leave it with this fantastic rhyme. Get ready. Beware the English religion, its doctrines and its fate. For the foundation stones of its churches are the balls of Henry VIII. <laughs> That's a good one. Yeah. The important thing here is that Henry is a greedy SOB, and starts what's called the Dissolution of the Monasteries, where wow. he just waltzes in and takes over all the monasteries in England. Many of these monasteries had existed for centuries and centuries, and were centers of learning, scientific development, and innovation, so over the course of, you know, 800 years, you accumulate quite a lot of property, land, and stuff. From, you know, literally a thousand years of hundreds of monks working and praying all day while living under vows of poverty. So Henry just takes all the money and goods owned by the monasteries, kills or drives away the monks, and then either keeps the land for himself or gives it away to the sycophants who suck up to him. And of course, this process is going to apply to as many parts of Ireland as that fat bastard could get his bulging hands on. God. <laughs> I and hate as this. An, as an aside here, this is also a terrible, terrible thing because it significantly sets back innovation and technological development by who knows how long because those monasteries, many of them were literally at the cutting edge of science and industry. So like mm -hmm. there have been tests done in the ruins of some of these monasteries that were destroyed that had ironworks that found that the iron production process is being used by these monks in the early 1500s, were at a level of efficiency of refining that would not be reached again until, like, the 1850s. Holy shit. Yeah, so, like, you know, these monks, they, they were doing amazing things. Like, they were finding new ways to harness water with water wheels that powered stuff. Like, they were really doing a lot of development. And then Henry comes in and destroys it all. So, I thought I hated him a little bit, you know. But, you know, well, I've seen his armor. Oh yeah, the like the ridiculously fat suit of armor. Yep, I've 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 stood. He looks toe -to -toe. like a Dark Souls boss. He does. I stood toe to toe with that armor in New York City, and 
the I have no idea how to describe it. It was a weirdly terrifying experience. It was like inside this suit of armor once was a man who caused the death of thousands, hundreds of thousands, possibly millions, if you you know uh, count up the bill uh, of the English Empire. Um, yeah, no, it's what would his Dark Souls boss be name be like? The hungering malice, or something. There you go. I think that's that's probably right. <laughs> Basically, when I think of Henry VIII, I think of the rotten from Dark Souls Two. Which one's the rotten again? The one that's made out of corpses and is just kind of that blob down in the uh, the well. Oh yeah. Oh, that thing's fucking gross. Yeah, that that that's, yeah, that's Henry VIII in my imagination. Definitely. I mean, I just think of those big fat guys in the first level. You know, the ones with the, I think they have, like, swords. They're just so big and fat, they can't, they have to chase you and they can't keep up. Oh, yeah, yeah, the ones in the suits of armor, actually, yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. No, that's fair, that's fair. So, before we talk more about what a dick Henry was, and believe me, like, we've just scratched the surface, I think it's time to take a little break from Henry for today's honorable mention. Are you ready, Aaron? I am ready, but I don't have my script in front of me, so I'm just going to make this up. Honorable Mentions is the part of the show where we take a breath, we take a little breather, and we talk about something that's not related to the main story. Yes, usually what we cover is uh, an event, a person, a thing, a place, something that we've come across in our research that's made us go, holy shit, but it's not long enough for a full episode. And You know, we used to do this thing where we'd, like, find a reason to talk about it uh, by making a full episode that was, you know, loosely associated but now we've just decided to have a whole section of the show where we we cover these things that are small and wonderful or awful. We'll find out on today's honorable mentions. So, George, here's what I've decided. I had like five or six things in my honorable mention list, and all of them look good, and they'll all probably be on the show eventually, but there was one that I came across just yesterday that blew my fucking mind. Uh... Because of how hilariously stupid it is. Excellent. Um, So what we're going to talk about uh, very briefly here on Honorable Mentions is the 1904 Summer Olympics Men's Marathon. Have you heard this story? I I haven't. No, this this is a blind side to me. I have no <laughs> I, I have no idea where this is going. <laughs> I'll just tell you what. I'm not this... I'm not even going to Google it right now. Don't Google it. No, no. I'm going to I'm going to sit back and enjoy. Okay. The, feel free to engage as well. I mean, it is a as a dual host podcast. Fine. All right. <laughs> All right. So the 1904 Summer Olympics Men's Marathon. This is the sordid tale of a run that damn near killed several people. Um, yes, it's 1904, and it's time for the St. Louis Summer Olympics. And you'll be pleased to know that on this particular day, August 30th, 1904, the heat index in St. Louis was about 135 degrees Fahrenheit. What um, the hell? <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> Which is great if you're a sand person, and it's also not great if the only water source for your runners is 11 miles into the run. <laughs> okay. Yeah, so we're setting ourselves up for success here. And I believe it was on purpose um, because they wanted to conduct research on serious dehydration so some mad scientist was like don't put any water on the 25 mile course so i can run some tests yes <laughs> so brilliant this will get many publications <laughs> <laughs> um so yeah 
uh, deliberate dehydration. And this race, of course, was to take place over about 25 miles, as most marathons tend to do. And it was to begin in a stadium and end in the same stadium. The runners would follow a tough circuit out uh, and about St. Louis, um, and ideally return alive, but we will, we will see. However, there were some problems on this particular day in history, apart from the monumental heat and the forced dehydration. Specifically, this was one of the first marathons that involved automobiles filled with spectators driving along with the runners. I I both do and don't like where this is going. Yeah, it's it's not it's it's not good. Because the problem is it's dusty, and a lot of these vehicles are driving ahead of the athletes, and it's kicking up a lot of dust. This, of course, only serves in making the runners even thirstier and coating them with a lot of nasty filth. And there was one runner named William Garcia who would be subdued uh, by this. He uh, was later found found later on down the race lying in a uh, ditch. <laughs> Uh, suffering internal trauma from all the dust. Uh, nearly killed him. <clears throat> and at the beginning of the race, there was a guy... Oh, this is where it gets kind of funny. So at the beginning of the race, uh, Fred Lors, an American competitor, uh, he was expected to be the winner um, because he was the fastest, he had the most endurance of the group that everyone, you know, knew. Uh, and he fully also expected to be the winner because about nine miles into the run, he caught a cab and took it all the way around the circuit to the end of the race. And uh, we'll get to him again here in a second. Can, can you believe this shit? What a, that is a that is a pro gamer move. If ever yeah. I heard one. <laughs> I mean that the office stole from the 1904 Olympics. That that's literally yeah okay. So there was also a, a British man by the name of Thomas Hicks who uh, was the uh, other fastest guy, and, but he was like he was killing himself. You know how they say pace yourself when you're doing like 25 miles because you'll just not be able to make it. Well, he doesn't believe in that that uh, idea, so he's actually... It sounds like a bunch of liberal bullshit to me. <laughs> <laughs> that was good. Oh, man. Uh, running too fast to own the libs. <laughs> Dying of dehydration to own the libs. <laughs> so anyway, he's running so fast, he's actually a mile and a half ahead of the nearest contender. Um, he was going so fast, in fact, that he wore himself out and needed to lie down about 10 miles from the finish line. But his trainers knew that he had to keep running. Uh, they were like, we can't lose this race or we lose out on a big fat paycheck. And so they're like, what are we going to do? Because he's like, he's literally to the point where he's trying to like lie down on the side of the road, you know, in the heat, just like after 15 fucking miles of running. It's just like, what's going to get this guy going? Well... His trainers have an idea. Guess what they have on them? I'm just gonna let you guess. Guess what they're carrying with them that will reinvigorate Thomas Hicks? Methamphetamines. Mm-mm. No, oh, I was thinking. I was thinking of our Finnish friend. You would um, think whiskey. Right. Uh, close. So they they uh, reinvigorated Thomas uh, in his dehydrated state by giving him brandy. <laughs> <laughs> Which. Wow. Old-timey medicine was amazing. Yeah, but it wasn't... The thing is, it wasn't just your ordinary, everyday brandy. It was it was a special brandy. Um, because it had rat poison mixed into it. <laughs> what? Why? <laughs> because at very low doses, strychnine acts as a stimulant. Oh, um, T-I-L. Next, yeah. next time I've got to do an all-nighter. Yeah. <laughs> Don't mind me, just in the library with my rat poison. 
<laughs> so apparently it works, um, and so he keeps running. But the trouble is, the other side effect of drinking alcohol, uh, rat poison, and rat poison while running a marathon, is you get a little bit of the uh, the old hallucinations. <laughs> okay. So I, I you've like got where this is going. Yep. So you've got this half drunk, poisoned athlete running a goddamn marathon while presumably seeing a ten story tall version of himself running alongside him. Uh, unbelievable. He would actually nearly die at the end of the race, and he had to li- his his trainers like lifted him up under his arms, and he like moved his legs like he was running, and that's how he got over the finish line. For some reason, this does not surprise me that he almost died. Yeah, it took multiple doctors. He was lucky they were in St. Louis, because um, anywhere else he probably would have died. Or not anywhere, but you know, if it were in a more rural area with fewer doctors. So the trouble is... Um, oh, I'm sorry. I went back. Sorry. Involved in this race also was a Cuban mailman... <laughs> Um, who joined the race at the last minute. This was a man who had just lost all his money gambling in New Orleans, hitchhiked his way across the country to the event. And just as he was about to enter, he started to feel a little bit hungry. Because he was going to run this race. Just this mailman, this Cuban mailman was like, fuck it, I'll run the Olympics. Like you do. You just... Yeah. But he was starting to feel a little hungry because he hadn't eaten in over 40 hours. Um, so what's, what's a Cuban man to do? Well, he looks over and he sees an orchard and he's like, hell yeah, I'm going to steal some apples. And so he does. And then he goes to the race and he discovers a problem. He discovers that everyone is in shorts and he is not. And obviously in order to run, you need to have shorts. So he remedies this by cutting off his pant legs. Problem solved. Once again, pro-gamer move. Yep. <laughs> so this Cuban starts to run, and about halfway through the race, uh, he starts having some strong stomach cramps. Apparently the apples he ate were indeed rotten. <laughs> that hungry. <laughs> <laughs> so he's like, oh shit, I can't, I can't keep running with this stomachache, so I've got to lie down to take a nap. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so he takes a nap. Um, wakes up and starts running again, and he would go on to win fourth place. <laughs> what? Yeah, he won fourth place. <laughs> Is it because everyone else died? No, Cuban mailman um, got fourth place, uh, running in cutoff shorts. Uh, <laughs> penniless gets fourth place. Hilarious. And he took a nap during. <laughs> so stupid. This God, marathon. He- what? I was going to say, wow, the Olympics used to be worth watching. Yeah, really. So this marathon also involved the first two Africans to compete in the Olympics, uh, Len and Yamasani. Representing their continent well, um, they were competitive contenders in the race. Well, they would be if they hadn't been chased off course for over a mile by angry dogs. (laughs) (laughs) This, this, the, the, the logistics and planning of this were really... Top notch, weren't they? Like, they, oh yeah, they they really they they had crossed all the I's and dotted the T's. <laughs> <laughs> so the winner of this shit show ended up actually being Thomas Hicks. Uh, it was discovered that Fred Lors, the guy who took the car, um, had indeed faked his run and taken a car. 
Um, but this was only after he was photographed with the gold medal and Alice Roosevelt, the daughter of Theodore Roosevelt. <laughs> um, he would go on to say that it was obviously all a meme, um, but it would not save him from being banned from competing in the Olympics ever again. Understandable. Have a nice day. Yeah. <laughs> so that's the story of the 1904 Summer Olympics, and that's where we'll close our segment, Honorable Mentions, for this week. Wow, well, that was that was a wild ride, a run, a run or whatever. <laughs> what? Wow. Okay, so yeah, so where were we? Oh yes, <laughs> oh yes, Henry the Eighth. That's where we were. Oh God. So, the thing about Henry is that he didn't actually care that much about the the religion, the theology aspect of things. He really just wanted a divorce or three, and he wanted to take people's stuff. And he wanted to murder anyone who questioned his right to do either of those things. Including, you know, a 28-year-old nun who claimed to have had a vision that said that Henry was kind of a dick, paraphrased. And uh, (laughs) so Henry had her beheaded, along with five other clergy who were known to associate with her, just for good measure. Oh, God. What a Um, fucking asshole. He also had an old woman executed for treason because her son was a Catholic cardinal who had left England rather than accept the Church of Henry. God, he's so bad. How can he not know how bad he is? Oh, it, it's it's unspeakable. But yeah, hundreds, uh, mostly Catholics, but a few people from various types of non-Anglican Protestantism um, were killed by Henry, um, but it was mostly Catholics. Right. And some of, one of the most egregious is the monks of a Carthusian monastery, which the Carthusians are the most secluded and austere of all monastic orders. Like, they pretty much live their lives in silence. They don't even, you know, not even talking to each other unless it's absolutely necessary. They just pray and work the fields. And so they're, they're considered the most austere of all monastic orders. Like, these are not, these are harmless people. Like, these are the most innocuous, non-offensive people. They literally don't even talk. They just work the fields and pray. That's they're, it. L- they're literally asking for it. I can't see why Henry hasn't killed these guys already. <laughs> and so what he does is he takes about half of them and hangs and draws and quarters them for treason since they didn't want to accept the Church of Henry. And the others he has chained to posts and starved to death. Jesus Christ. Yeah. Well. Yeah. And Henry's son, Edward, um, continues this trajectory, but he also makes it worse because he starts to demand theological instead of just political compliance. With Henry, it was mostly just recognize my authority over the church and you're fine rather than recognize these doctrines. Right. But now with his son, Edward, we start to go on the theological route. So he forces people to use the prayers that he had approved and bans the prayers that they've been using for centuries. He uses this opportunity as well to crack down on non-English languages in the kingdom, since by imposing his approved English prayers, he can also restrict the right of people to use their own languages, since many of their prayer, traditional prayers, were in the minority languages of English, uh, language li- languages like Cornish, which was spoken in Cornwall. There were tons of minority languages that Edward starts to use his religious reform to crack down on, because those languages were most frequently used for, you know, 
folk practices and prayers and stuff, which he's cracking down on and forcing them to use the English ones that he approved. So fuck that guy. So uh, fuck this guy too, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So this, this uh, sort of theological crackdown, along with a general free-for-all of the newly Anglican nobility... Um, who are using this opportunity to oppress peasants and deprive people of their property and rights, all in the name of enforcing this new religion, leads to rebellions. And sometimes not even rebellions, just general protests. But rebelling or protest doesn't make a difference, I just fly the drone, and there are brutal, brutal suppression of, of any resistance. At one point, 900 prisoners all had their throats slit in the course of a few minutes to send a message to anyone who dared to oppose the king's new religion. Fuck the English. You're making a good case. Yep. And so the next monarch, however, Mary, wasn't into the whole Anglican thing and tried to stop this trajectory and bring England back into the Catholic Church, but it was too late and it had gone too far and she wasn't able to do very much against the very powerful Anglican nobility who were rather enjoying the massive amounts of wealth and power they're able to accumulate from this process of becoming Anglican. Now, this Mary is the Mary who's often called Bloody Mary, but I have to... This is this is where I'm drawing my line and making a stand. It is bullshit that she's the one who has a title like that. In wow. her reign, around 250 people are executed on religious grounds. Uh, mostly Protestant rabble-rousers who are seen as, you know, politically contentious and a threat to the kingdom. So 250 people, approximately. Well, which it's, is it's, significantly less, by yeah. a massive margin, than were killed under the Protestant monarchs before or after her. Yeah, well, it's like... <laughs> I don't mean... Well, I don't know. It's just... it's. I don't even know if I want to say that. Never mind. This is awful. Well, it's, be, it's, it's because it's the historia, you know, the basically the hagiography of people like Elizabeth and Henry is written by Anglicans. Most of our historical background, at least in America, comes through the English tradition. And so they, obviously, good British Anglican historians, call her Bloody Mary. And so we sort of grow up thinking of her that way. But she is significantly less bloody than either her predecessors or successors. That's my point. And it's, I just, it makes me angry that she's the one who gets a title like that instead of, you know, Sausage Finger Henry or, God, Elizabeth, as we shall come to see. Well, you know, it's, I'm, just, I'm just saying, thinking to myself, like, who benefits by labeling her that, you know? Um, I don't know. Anyway. Probably the nobles. So... On to her successor, Elizabeth, um, who kills thousands and thousands of people on religious grounds. Ugh. It starts out with things like fines for going to Catholic Mass, fines for not going to Anglican Mass. Like, it starts out fairly low-key, but the history of brutal repression and murder means that many Catholics are not huge fans of the English monarchy which in turn leads to Elizabeth distrusting English Catholics and persecuting them more, which leads to them hating and resisting the monarchy more. And it just sort of builds up and eventually it reaches a point where the Pope declares that Catholics did not owe loyalty to Elizabeth, um, since gen generally in Catholicism it's taught that you're supposed to respect and obey civil authorities. But the Pope goes and 
issues a letter saying, you know what, if you are Catholic under the rule of the English monarchy, you don't owe them that. There's no moral reason you should be listening to them. Mm. And Elizabeth then pretty much began trying to kill every single Catholic priest in the country, and also anyone who gave shelter to a priest or was caught attending mass. God, these people are psychopaths. Yeah, and it's it's bad. Like they're um, you can actually see some of them. They're like in various homes in England. There are like hollowed out spaces under like a floor tile that are called a priest hole because they would hide a priest in there during Elizabeth's persecutions. Wow. Yeah, it's it's crazy. But despite such measures, um, imposing English state Protestantism upon the Catholic Irish hadn't been making a whole lot of progress. So eventually, the English simply start driving the Irish Catholics off their land and bringing in Protestants from Britain and Scotland to replace them. And they also rearranged the election system of the so-called Irish Parliament so that the massive Catholic majority was outnumbered in government by the Protestant minority. Jesus, Basically, they on. just founded a bunch of quote-unquote towns with a, with a little group of Protestants, and then that town would get equal representation to like an you know a town 30 times larger that was Catholic. And so they just founded all these towns so that Protestants would outnumber Catholics in the fake parliament. I'd say it was stupid if it wasn't so clearly <clears throat> evil. So eventually, however, they just go all the way, and Catholics were banned from holding public office or serving in the army, and massive fines were charged for not showing up to Anglican church services, and all the Catholic churches were seized and turned into Protestant churches. But the persecution wasn't quite as bad as it was in England, um, and many priests were able to secretly operate and say mass in houses and hidden chapels. Because the population is you know, overwhelmingly Catholic, they just couldn't have quite as draconian a system as they had in England. Right. <clears throat> But in 1641, the Catholic Irish rebel against the Protestant tyranny and try to reclaim their country from the English and Scottish settlers who had taken their land. It started out pretty low-key. Um, it wasn't a, really a rebellion. It was more like resistance. There was, you know, they'd beat up settlers um, and ordered that they leave lands that they'd been given by the British crown that had been taken from the Irish. Sometimes they'd burn down a barn or sabotage something. Occasionally they'd sort of like uh, seize control of a village and declare that, you know, they would no longer pay taxes to the British crown. It wasn't really a war. It was sort of decentralized resistance. Mm. Um, but after several hundred Irish were captured while trying to sneak in and take over a, a fortress, an English and settler held fortress, the Protestants decided to massacre all the prisoners. Oh which significantly changed the nature of the conflict. Up to that point, it had really not been a rebellion, and it hadn't been that violent. But after that, there was no more messing around, and you had an all-out war between the Catholic Irish natives and the Protestant settlers, in which both sides followed the example that had been set by the settlers of giving no mercy and no quarter. And so perhaps 4,000... British and Scottish Protestant settlers were killed um, on the on lands that had been taken from the Irish, and many lands were yeah, reclaimed by the original owners. And the Protestant power in Ireland was actually um, broken because, as we'll see, the English had other things to worry about and couldn't really commit forces to deal with this. 
because the English Civil War was happening. Right. And they couldn't really afford an army to go fight the Irish. And so Ireland actually enjoyed a few short years of relative freedom. A provisional Catholic government was established, which, and this, this actually kind of surprised me, did in fact swear loyalty to the King of England, Charles I, who was at that point engaged in a civil war with the parliamentarian faction led by a psychopath named Oliver Cromwell. So it's like they didn't even demand like fully in full independence from Britain. They just wanted an actual Irish government of Irish people and were still willing to be part of the kingdom. Gotcha. Uh, you broke up there for a second, so I missed that. Yeah, I was saying it's, it's interesting to me that they didn't actually demand, you know, being fully separate from the Kingdom of England. They were willing to still be part of that. They just wanted an actual Irish government of Ireland, but they were still willing to swear loyalty to the King of England and all that. So some kind of compromise. Yeah, basically. Okay. But the King of England loses that civil war with the parliamentarian faction. And from 1649 to 1653, during the civil war, Cromwell brutally reconquers Ireland on behalf of England and Protestantism. The outright slaughter of the Catholic Irish, which he engaged in, was followed by famine, which was made worse by the intentional destruction of food supplies by Cromwell, and then followed up by plague and disease in the devastated country. <sighs> Holy crap. By the end of this, at least half and maybe closer to three quarters of the Irish population was dead or enslaved. The And Ireland was put under the ominously titled Act of Settlement, which was of course passed by the so-called Irish Parliament. This effectively confiscated almost all the land which was still owned by Catholics, and even barred Catholics from living in towns and, reinst and reinstated instant execution for any Catholic clergy found. So before this war, Catholics had still owned 60% of the total land in Ireland, after it only 8%. Of, Ireland, of Irish land was owned by the Irish. Uh, I'm I'm starting to kind of get 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 a little mad, just a little. At yeah, the, at the at the English right now, just a tiny bit, just. And so, there had been some Protestants who had fought on the same side as the Irish because they were royalists, they were supporters of the king, not of Cromwell, and so they'd ended up on the same side as the Irish Catholics. And those um, Protestants in Ireland who had fought against Cromwell were spared most of the harsh measures and were allowed to keep their land. They just had to pay a fine. Gotcha. Mm. But not so for the Catholics. Of Simply having been a Catholic in Ireland during this war was grounds for at least partial confiscation of your land and property if you could not prove that you had, and I quote this directly from the Act of Settlement, or I think this is from the Act of Settlement. Anyway, this is from an original document. You had to prove that you had manifested constant good affection to the interests of the Commonwealth of England, uh, or else they would take your property. So you had to literally prove, over these four years, I've constantly worked for the benefit of the English crown, or else they'll take your stuff. Even if you, bastards! Even if you had no participation in the war whatsoever, if you can't prove you were helping England, they'll take your stuff. But why? Why did England need all this stuff? To pay their debts, of course, because oh, when... No. No. When the war started, Parliament began a program where people could loan money to the government to fund the war, and then they would get paid back a higher value in confiscated Irish land. 
What? What a deal. So, after the war, you've got to confiscate everyone's land because you have to use it to pay back the people who loaned you the money for the war. That's just fucking stupid. Yeah. Ugh. Yeah. So by this time, most of the Irish Catholic population was without land, poor, and working as tenant farmers on the land that they once owned. That is, if they were lucky enough to have avoided being put into indentured servitude and sent off to be worked to death in British plantations in the Caribbean, a fate which tens of thousands suffered. Ugh. Mm. Cromwell is a psychopath. We by need the to way. cover him, or you need to cover him. <laughs> oh, I, 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 I have some things I could say about Cromwell. <laughs> <clears throat> anyway, so after the restoration of the monarchy, um, King Charles II tries to ease the oppression of the Irish and loosens some of the sanctions on Catholics and restores some property rights. The like key baby steps. After this, the Irish own about 20% of Irish land. So, better than 8%, but still significantly down from 60%, which it was before the war. The Ireland... Hmm. They only own 20% of Irish land. They're Irish, for fuck's sake. I mean, it's better than 8%. It is true, it's true, but still, they should have all percent. <laughs> but in the meantime, as King Charles is trying to loosen some things, other restrictions are added such as banning Catholics from universities and requiring specific oaths denying specific parts of Catholic theology that had to be taken before you could exercise any public or military office. So they decided it wasn't good enough that you swore loyalty to the King of England and even that you swore that he was the head of the church. You now had to specifically say that you swear that you don't believe certain Catholic teachings. Um, why do they hate Jesus so much? <laughs> because they're English, Aaron. Of course. <laughs> on his deathbed, however, Charles II decides that his outlook on eternity wasn't so great and actually is received into the Catholic Church on his deathbed. What? Wait, what? He was let in at the end? Well, yeah, that's, that's kind of the whole point is that, you know, anyone who asks for forgiveness can get it. Okay, all right. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, so no, it's like after being king for years and overseeing, you know, this incredibly brutal exploitative system, he's like, maybe they're actually the ones who are right. Are we the baddies? <laughs> yeah, literally, <laughs> are we the baddies? <laughs> so in, um, in 1685, James II becomes the king of England and Ireland, and he was... Forgive me for using such profanity. Also a Catholic. Oh, no. Oh, yeah. God. Because he had returned to the ancestral faith while he was in exile after the execution of his father, King Charles I, by Cromwell and the parliamentarians. Uh-oh. Things are about to so flip. So James obviously tries to undo some of the century and a half of brutal persecution. But, of course, the state church elites in Parliament weren't exactly fans of that. And when James decided to ignore Parliament and issue a decree granting freedom both to Catholics and to other non-recognized Protestant groups, because remember the Anglican Church is the state church, and so not so obviously being Catholic is out, but you're also not really enjoying full rights if you're a Protestant that's of a different type of Protestantism. Right, right. So James issues a decree granting freedom 
uh, to Catholics and non-recognized Protestant groups, but many Anglican clergy simply refuse to announce the decree like they were supposed to. And this mm-hmm. this just pissed me off. Many uh, representatives from the other non-recognized Protestant groups also oppose this decree because they would rather continue to not have full rights than see the Catholics have rights. I see. Yeah. <laughs> what the fuckers? The fuckers, man. So, after the Anglican church clergy defied the king, it was clear that the king was no longer in full control of the country, and anti-Catholic riots soon began, and members of parliament and the political elites decided that James's Protestant daughter Mary and her super-Protestant husband, a fucking Dutchman named <laughs> Will... <laughs> named William of Orange, should be king and queen to prevent James from treating Catholics like goddamn human beings and, oh God, leaving the kingdom to his Catholic son and thus endangering a centuries-old system of genocide and exploitation. Can't have These that! These people suck! Can't, can't not commit genocide! Not surprisingly, in the civil war that followed, the Irish Catholics sided with James, you know, the one who didn't want them enslaved. Right. Um, a few Protestants in Ireland also fought with James um, and for the monarchy, but once again, the split was almost entirely along religious lines. Almost all Protestants fought for the fucking Dutchman in Parliament. Almost all Catholics fought for James. Well, The war lasted that- three years... And unfortunately, the elites, the Protestants, and the Dutch won. In the aftermath, even more measures were adopted to marginalize Catholics, including requiring anyone practicing law or medicine to take an oath denying Catholic doctrines, forbidding Catholics to own weapons or horses, and forbidding Catholics to send their children to school abroad. So, this is fucking gross. Yes, yes it is. Um, so political power in Ireland was vested pretty much exclusively in this tiny Anglican, or to use its made-up name, Church of Ireland minority. Because oh. remember, the Church of England, mm. you have to be in England to be a member of. And so if you're in Ireland, it's the Church of Ireland acting like it's not all one monolithic state monstrosity. I have always hated Anglicanism. <laughs> But yeah, so the Church of Ireland. Yeah. So they own Ireland. almost all the land. Um, they're 5% of the population of Ireland, the Church of Ireland, and they own almost all the land. The elites, man. Alex yep. Jones was right. <laughs> the Catholic supermajority was impoverished and disenfranchised, and they generally were working as poor tenant farmers on the land that their fathers had owned. There was, however, another group. That is the Settlers. You remember them. Um, yeah. They are, you know, many of them are Scottish, some are English, but they've been brought in at this point, you know, like a century previous, and they were mostly Presbyterians rather than Anglicans. Um, they're concentrated almost exclusively in Ulster up in the northeast of Ireland. And like the Catholics, they didn't really have political power, but they owned their own land and lived in in actual decent conditions and generally quite successful and prosperous, and they were generally loyal to the English government who had confiscated all that nice land from the Catholics and given it to them. Right. So you have one group that has almost all the land and all the power, 
One group that has some of the land and none of the power, and one group that has none of the land and none of the power. And the biggest group is... The one with none of the land and none of the power. Yep. <laughs> By far. By far. Yeah. So this situation lasts for about a century, actually. Um, and this is called, this is actually what historians refer to it as, the Protestant Ascendancy. Oh my god. And during this time, the condition of the actual Irish population was terrible. The Anglican landlords, or sorry, Church of Ireland... <laughs> landlords, many of whom didn't even live in Ireland, mercilessly exploited the tenant farmers and enforced high quotas for export, even at times when Ireland itself was threatened by famine. Um, they just export, make money. No, you can't keep any of the food for yourself. Keep up the cogs of, of mercant mercantile capitalism going. And so, by um, in 1740, an unusually cold winter caused a famine which killed over 400,000 people in Ireland. Whoa, in just that one winter? Um, it was it was between two years. So it's okay. 1740, and the famine lasted, like, over a year and a half. God. So the famine was considered 1740 and 1741. Starvation's a hell of a way to go. Yeah. Eventually, however, some of those Anglo-Irish elites who lived in Ireland started to identify more with Ireland than with England, and the non-Anglican Protestants in the North began to grow tired of political domination by the state church minority. And so you had various political movements which tried to win greater autonomy for Ireland and relief for its population. Um, you know, like they wanted the Irish Parliament to have a little bit more power. Of course, the Irish Parliament's entirely Protestant. Right. So these are, these are not people who are really trying to improve the lot of the actual Irish very much. They just are basically colonial elites who want a higher standing vis-a-vis -vis the elites back home. <laughs> right. Oh, God. Various political movements, yeah, are trying to win greater autonomy, and as part of that, there's usually some measures that'll, yeah, and this will also, you know, improve the lives of the poor Irish, because they want to get, you know, they want to be at least appear to have popular backing. But no one really wants to give rights or political representation to the Catholics, and so pretty much every attempt at reform kind of stalls out due to once it comes up to, but how does this affect the, uh, the you know, those people? This, right. this, is, this isn't going to give them rights, is it? And, like, it always <laughs> ends up, it always ends up sort of stalling out because people are afraid that Catholics might get rights. Oh, and if they did, how horrible, how horrible. Or, oh, God. They'd basically so, wor be working directly for the Pope. Ha so right at the end of the 18th century, um, Presbyterians in the north, the Scotch-Irish, as they're generally called, settlers, decide that they've kind of had enough of this whole system where they don't get any political representation either. So even though they're not starving and actually are pretty well-to-do, they kind of think it would be cool if they had political rights too. So then they decide that they want this badly enough that they're willing to work with Catholics if it meant they'd have a chance of breaking free from the British crown. Hell yeah. So there's a Protestant, so Presbyterian secret society called the United Irishmen, uh, founded at the end of the 18th century, and it was founded originally to advocate for political reform. But, as we talked about, the political reform never really got off the ground, and so in 1798, they start a rebellion, with the support of many Irish Catholics, 
seeking to cast off England and found a secular republic on the model of the United States, actually. Wow. Okay. Because remember, this is, you know, the 1798, so it's just a few decades after. They think, maybe we'll try that. Yeah. Um, so the Presbyterians get, they get it, they get a check mark this time. <laughs> they get a pass. It's, it's next episode, things are going to get weird, but, um, oh, God. this, in this episode, the Presbyterians, <laughs> for the second half of this episode, the Presbyterians are no longer the bad guys. <laughs> <laughs> The only Protestants uh, who didn't suck always. <laughs> <laughs> so, unfortunately, the rebellion was kind of a disaster. Damn the it. British government had learned of the plan and arrested most of the leaders the morning of the, that the rebellion was supposed to begin. So they preempt it. So it's too late to, like, reschedule, but suddenly all the leaders are gone. So the rebellion ends up being really disorganized and undirected because the leadership almost all got arrested. But nevertheless, thousands and thousands in all parts of Ireland rose up and fought hard and nobly for their freedom against the English. A small expedition of French soldiers also arrived to help because fuck the English. That's pretty. Right. That's a sentiment everyone, including the French, hold. Um, yep. <laughs> and several areas of Ireland succeeded in briefly driving out British forces, though all of them were soon recaptured, and many, many captured rebels were brutally slaughtered by loyalist militias. While the French prisoners were lucky, they were just exchanged for British prisoners that were being held in France. Mm. But if you were Irish, you were not that lucky, and they were generally just killed by either br British soldiers or paramilitaries. Okay. Yeah, so you have rebels were burned alive in buildings, um, massacred by the hundreds, suspected sympathizers, so people who weren't even part of the rebellion but were suspected of sympathizing, were murdered by the British without trial, and a bloody campaign of terror, slaughter, and rape was carried out all over Ireland by the British forces, many of whom were the local Anglo-Irish elites. They were the, the the Anglo presence in Ireland. They weren't even coming over from England. They were the ones who lived in Ireland. So, as I said before, the whole Anglo-Irish, we want greater autonomy, was not because they liked the Irish. It's because they wanted more power. Right, right. Because they're perfectly happy to slaughter and pillage and rape and murder the Irish. Yeah, I mean, because that's what they've been doing, you know, almost passively. Um, that's what they've been doing, you know, for literally at this point, like 500 years. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. The last remaining leader of the rebellion, uh, Wolf Tone, secured more French help and actually tried to land a French force of about 3,000 on Ireland but he was intercepted by the British and surrendered after a three-hour naval battle. Wolf Tone was sentenced to death, and he requested that he die by firing squad like a soldier, rather than being hanged like a criminal, but the British refused, so he cut his own throat in prison before they could hang him. Stick it to the man. <laughs> it's like the it's like when Willem Dafoe dies in uh, in John Wick. Remember it's yeah. so when whatever the Russian guy is like, you know. You go out on my terms, and, and Willem Dafoe's like, no, no, sir, I go out on my own. And mm. then grabs the gun, and there's a shootout, and then he gets shot like 40 times. Damn, I remember that scene. Very good scene. Yep. So in response to this rebellion, the very limited political autonomy of Ireland, which was already just restricted to the English elite class anyway, was nevertheless abolished, and Ireland was merged into the Kingdom of England, so there's no more so-called Irish Parliament. It's just going to become part of the Kingdom of England. 
And this merger of the Kingdom of England with the Kingdom of Ireland creates the term we're all familiar with, the United Kingdom. Ugh. Of course, even as subjects of this United Kingdom, Irish Catholics and non-Anglican Protestants would still be denied political influence. Classic. And that takes us about up to the beginning of the 19th century, which is where I'm going to stop for today, because um, that's kind of a that's kind of a turning point once Ireland is just part of the UK and is no longer even in theory a separate entity. I thought it was a good place to break it off, since the next century is actually relatively... It, it's different. Things get different in the next century, and so I thought this was a good time to stop. And so next week, we'll pick up with the 19th century and the famine, the big famine, and finally, some more Irish resistance to the British, because that bill is looking mighty long, mm -hmm. and then the life and death of James Connolly and the heroes of 1916. Yeah, awesome. You know, it's funny that you mentioned the bill there at the end. I was, I was thinking about the UK the other day, and I was like, let me tell you what, the, they still haven't, there's still a pretty long bill that the UK has to pay Yeah, all over the world. Yeah, they're, they're, they're <laughs> still paying it, and I'm looking at it, and I'm like, well, this is the way the world works. You rack up a bill, and you pay it, and, you know, it's, it's like, you look over there, and they're, like, they're all like, oh, the country's falling, we need to Brexit, and all this stuff, and it's just like, nope, sorry, like, I don't know. What, what to tell you, but you've got a uh, thousand or a couple thousand years of uh, horror in your history. And um, I don't know, feels like the, uh, the old bill is coming and it's still coming. And the charges are through the roof and the it's company severe. credit card is no good anymore. <laughs> What'd you say? Severe. Yeah, it's, it's severe. But I think that's, I think that's, that's happening a lot. It's like when you read when you read a history like that, it's like, well, somebody had to pay it. Like, what the fuck did you expect? <laughs> the bills start coming and they don't stop coming. <laughs> <laughs> it's a bigger bill than one man could ever pay. Um, so, I think that's a great place to end for today. Um, and what a great little review of the history of English uh, oppression. Yeah, no, that's why I. I'd originally intended to actually start on Connolly today and to just sort of start this like sometime probably in the 18th century. But then I was like, you really don't get the full picture of the struggle of the Irish for self-determination and freedom if you just start there. Yeah. Like to really understand what the Easter Rising means and represents, you have to go back to where all this mess started. Well... Great job, honestly. I feel like I have a full context required to understand the, uh, the well, not full context, but enough to understand at least the, the basics of this, uh, of Connolly's story, which we'll be hearing about next week. And with that, I think it's time to head to the surface. He sounds good to me. All right, off we go. George, what are you going to do for the rest of the day? I'm going to go fix a tractor. Nice. Lynn, what about you? I am going to go fix a cut of a award show movie thing for some guy who did movies. 
<laughs> that sounds like a fake answer, but okay. That's exactly <laughs> what I'm gonna do. I I'm yeah. You know those you know those award video like when they announce like uh, Michael Bay wins Best Picture for Transformers. Come on down, Michael Bay. You know how they play a reel? Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so I'm doing one of those. Oh, that sounds terrible. It's not that fun. <laughs> I mean, actually, I like it. It's it's a lot of fun for me, but at this point, I'm just like, I don't know this man. I haven't watched that many of his movies. I don't even care about the movies anymore. You know, I'm just like, fuck it. I'll do it. I've never met this man in my entire life. <laughs> uh, well, I think it's time to bring the show to an end for today. If you hate us, you're probably British, so consider funding the show with your uh, gold standard by becoming a patron on patreon.com. Or if Patreon is not your thing, drop us a little British tip in Venmo. That's at WTADP. Pay up, Brits. It's the only way to save yourself from your bill. And we also accept payment in the form of confiscated Irish farmland. Yes, we, we do. Uh, we would like to have some of Ireland uh, to, uh, to, to live in. Me as, a, as an Anglo and George as... What the fuck are you anyway? Um, I have partial Irish background. Okay, so there's that's where your sentence is like. I mean, I would have persecuted you back in the day for even having a partial Irish background. I hope you know that. I would have I would have burned your barn down. That would have been awesome. That would have been the meme war of the meme war of 1560. <laughs> Our cover art was created by Ian Patterson of Ian Patterson Illustration. You can view more of his wonderfully whimsical work at www.ipattersonillustration.com. And with all that being said, we'll close out and let the sounds of freedom or death play you out. Man, I lay people up.